0: Hello guys, warmest welcomes to the latest instalment of North Wales's premier spare room-based one-person true crime show, seeking out those unfamiliar tales of dark deeds and wrong from all corners of the UK and Ireland. I'm the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, Paul, offering my thanks for joining me here today and hoping, and I'm proper extra hoping this time around, that in the midst of all of this madness, that all you guys listening are good and well bloody coronavirus eh it's become the new brexit now i know that it's bad and serious and i'm hoping that it passes all of you guys by but the media really i mean jesus wept it's a proper double-edged sword isn't it sensationalism creates panic and all these people who are out buying bog roll and hand gel like it's gone out of fashion well you aren't helping at all just calm down don't let anyone cough right in your face wash your hands as you were taught to as a kid and should do out of basic hygiene anyway and spare a thought for those people who it isn't as easy for to get out to the shops have them in mind because they're your casualties in all this aren't they basically be nice and rational not a bell end as much as can be it's business as usual here on the show The only coronavirus I can imagine will result in the form of a headache from too many of the little bottles of the same name that I've got a fridge full of. Thanks also this episode to my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs this week going out to Mary McNulty, Jesse Sheffield, Elizabeth Pagger, Catherine, Sandra Ray, Jay Barnes, Rosalind Lawrence, Jar L, Bethan Cundy, and Michael Brockhurst thank you so much folks some stuff has been sent out to some of you and i hope that you've all had a chance to make a start on the extra bonus episodes of the show bonus episode number 27 will be out before the end of the month and it's a bit of a macabre one that i've chosen this time around too if you too that's you guys of course listening not the well past the best band want to have access to all of these as a patreon supporter then it's very reasonable and it's very simple to do just head over to the Patreon site and look up the show, always remember to put the podcast suffix on it, or there is as ever a link to the show's Patreon page in the episode show notes. Quicker than a shelf full of bog roll currently goes in a supermarket, you'll have access to episodes like The Murder of Janie Shepherd, The Teddington Lock Towpath Killings, or The Rotten Rose of Devon to name just a few, with a new episode released for supporters monthly. Before we crack on with the episode this week then, which is a change to the scheduled one, but I'll explain more shortly, once again I'm pleased to give a brief word from this week's sponsor of the show, New York Times' number one best-selling crime author Kathy Reichs and her latest book in the Temperance Brennan series, A Conspiracy of Bones, which is out now from Simon & Schuster Publishing. Do you enjoy some forensic detective fiction when you're not head deep in true crime? And if like myself that you do, then you're going to want to be all over the latest book from best-selling author Kathy Reichs, A Conspiracy of Bones, available now from Simon & Schuster Publishers. If you like the long-running TV procedural series Bones, then you may know that Kathy's books were the basis for the show, and with the latest offering in Kathy's Temperance Brennan series, A Conspiracy of Bones, this time around, no-nonsense forensic anthropologist Temperance Brennan finds herself mixed up in a macabre case involving a body that's missing its hands and its face and that's just where the mystery begins because for some reason the dead man had temperance's cell phone number and what's the overall connection to the decade-old case of a missing child the temperance brennan series has kept Cathy's fans gripped for several years and you'll find the latest offering no different with a conspiracy of bones get ready for a few shocking twists because after all everybody has some secrets and the more temperance uncovers the darker and more twisted the picture becomes a conspiracy of bones is out now available from simon and schuster publishing in hardback ebook and what i like personally best audiobook form you can grab yourself a copy off amazon or from all good supermarkets and high street bookstores now. Now last episode on the show I did claim that this week we've been beginning this series's multi-episode arc and it's still planned the writing is well underway for it but then the world pretty much seemed to disappear up its own arse and went to shit the likes of which many if not all of us have never seen before. Of course it does have a knock-on effect to pretty much everything which includes the pension plan role that I'm a monkey at and I anticipate being busy over the next couple of weeks. I can't really work from home in my role. So I've decided that I'd rather plug away and put out the regular show to the standard I set myself, rather than rush it and not do the tale justice. Which means that this week and the next, as a change to the advertised, I'm releasing one of the Patreon episodes of the show as an episode for all of you guys. And because undoubtedly there are some of you guys who are self-isolating out there, First and foremost, you of course have my thoughts and best wishes, but secondly, as something to help pass at least an hour of however long you're off for, I'll be releasing a second bonus episode this week also for everyone, just to say that from me, hopefully, here's an extra hour to take your mind off stuff. So the episode this week then deals with a shocking, incredibly sad crime that took place in the UK city of Newcastle back in 2006. Although as the episode progresses you'll see that whilst there is a clear perpetrator whose actions are of course inexcusable it's a case I personally believe that a multitude of failings and other factors contributed to it from which talking points may be raised about. But I'll let you guys make up your own minds following here in the episode. As ever the episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing So as ever guys, discretion is advised whilst listening. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as for this episode, we look back at a case I've entitled The War That Comes Home. David Bradley was born in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in 1965, the eldest of two boys born to soldier David Bradley Sr. and his wife Mary. Being a gunner in the Royal Artillery, The raising of David was largely left to Mary whilst David Sr. served in Singapore and Germany. The relationship between David's parents was never idyllic as it was punctuated by long periods of absence as lot of forces marriages are. When his father was home, young David had to bear witness to frequent arguments and violence between his parents, torment which played a significant impact in the development of his character. Now this crappy sounding relationship did produce a second son, Christopher, in 1971, but the relationship finally broke down for good by 1976, and the Bradleys divorced. What he'd witnessed in an unhappy home had had some effect on David, because he was, from an early age, withdrawn and solitary, and throughout his schooling, which was unremarkable, he was remembered by fellow pupils as a loner with few real friends. To compound his unhappy childhood, David was bullied at school and he often played truant to avoid these bullies because kids, as we know, can be very cruel. They can be downright little bastards actually, can't they? When his father had left the household, David had opted to go and live with him but unable to settle, the fractious father-son relationship broke down and by age 11, David had returned to live with his mother and brother. But after moving back in, As with so many people who witnessed violence and instability in a familial setting, David himself now became violent. It was the norm for him. Both his brother and his mother copped it from him, his mother especially having a tough time, and their relationship deteriorated alarmingly over the next few years. By the end of the 1970s, David had developed what is reported as a violent relationship with her, and after a particularly bad period, In 1982, David decided that he could no longer live with either parent, and his mum's sister, Josie Purcell, came to the rescue. Josie and her husband, Peter, lived in the Newcastle district of Bedwell, and they invited the teenage David to move in with them. The Purcells were a large, respectable, well-liked family, with Peter Purcell being self-employed in a roofing business. Peter was a typical working man. He liked a pint after work and a sesh on the weekends. He had to flutter on the horses, and especially loved doing practical jokes. But more than anything, Peter loved his family, and he worked hard to provide a home for them. Josie worked too, and after the six Purcell children were all enrolled in school, she went back to being a carer. Although it was a large household, it was a happy and a busy one, and the Purcells lovingly welcomed David into this fold. Now it must have appealed massively to the young adolescent suddenly being thrust into a happy and busy household away from rows and argument. It must have been fantastic for him. Yet even though he now had a happy home and he got on well with his cousins, David still remained very much a loner at heart. Schooling had been a non-start for him, he wasn't particularly academic and he drifted aimlessly for a few years expressing no interest to learn a trade, or follow his cousin Keith into the family roofing firm. It seemed that the only thing young David did have an interest in was firearms, and like his father, the military. He'd avidly read magazines such as Combat and Survival, and at age 17 he got his first shotgun. He became enthusiastic about shooting, and one of the first things that he did was to shorten the barrels on the shotgun, to make it more effective, he claimed. So perhaps as a natural step for someone who had a forces influence in his life and was enthusiastic about firearms and the military, by the time he was 22 in 1987, David Bradley had followed his father's footsteps and decided to enlist in the armed forces, joining the Royal Artillery. Now joining the forces is, for most people who do it, the absolute making of them, it certainly was for me. It teaches you a sense of self-pride, how to be self-reliant and how to work as part of a team. The friends that you make really are more like a family to you and most people have the time of their lives while serving. I can certainly testify to this, I enjoyed my time in the military thoroughly and still to this day I have a lot of close friends and an absolute rook of great stories. Yet for the good times, there are of course bad times that go with it. I personally lost friends, and I saw some pretty bad things, and that was never serving in an operational theatre with all the extra horrors that go with that. Most soldiers on the front line in these theatres can take things though, after all, that's what you sign up for ultimately, and through comradeship and training, you get into the mindset that's needed. Most become immune to the horrors that they see in theatres of war, the dead and the dying, the horrendous injuries, and the sights and smells of a war-torn country. Now it may prey on their mind, you'd have to not be human if seeing things like that didn't. But even if they did lie awake at night, they keep their thoughts and any bad dreams about it to themselves. And most can deal with it, knowing that other people are in exactly the same boat as them. They take strength from that, and it helps them through things. But not everyone, sadly, can do this. People do understandably struggle and post-traumatic stress disorder is today a very real and very recognised condition. One of those who struggled more than others was Private David Bradley of the Royal Artillery Branch of the British Army. Joining the military hadn't brought David very much out of his shell, but it should be said that he was no coward, on the contrary, he'd been an exemplary and able soldier even if he had the reputation of being a loner and not much of a mixer. In his army career, he'd served in theatres such as Bosnia, Northern Ireland and Iraq, and was a Gulf veteran of the First Gulf War, although restricted to a logistical role and not as part of the infantry. But Private Bradley stayed awake at night more than others, with his memories of battle and the visible horrors that he'd seen, even in this role, playing around in his mind, like a never-ending cine film. In Northern Ireland, he'd been exposed to the mob hatred that saw soldiers pelted with bricks and stones by rioters, and had witnessed both the events and the aftermath of several shootings and bombings. He also bore witness to a horrific incident when a loyalist protester in the Shankill area of Belfast was gruesomely mutilated when a bomb exploded in his hand before he had chance to throw it at Private Bradley's patrol. Then, while serving in the First Gulf War, Private Bradley had been part of the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers that had been struck when an American A-10 tank buster had mistook their convoy crossing the desert as an Iraqi insurgent's patrol and had opened fire. Four of Private Bradley's colleagues and friends had been killed in front of him in this friendly fire incident. But being a natural loner, Private Bradley would never speak about any of these events with his other army colleagues. Instead, he began to live in a state of almost constant fear, with real nervousness and anxiety for his personal safety. He couldn't sleep properly, and so would binge drink, trying to forget, and when he was away on leave, he began smoking cannabis as a crutch, which helped him to relax somewhat and sleep. It led to him leaving the army in early 1995 after they made him redundant and unable to relist, and the change back to civilian life proved a struggle for Bradley. It does take time, it took me a good year when I left to readjust I must admit, and it was even more of a struggle for David Bradley. He'd returned to live with the Purcells when he left the army, and for a number of years Bradley again drifted through life. He only ever worked periodically, and the jobs that he did get were menial, unskilled jobs that he didn't hold down for long. But in trying to readjust his civilian life, he began drinking more heavily and became more and more reclusive. He was to spend some time in a home for ex-servicemen down in Wales, however, but he ultimately returned to Newcastle and was once again taken in by his kindly aunt and uncle. He continued binge drinking and heavily using cannabis after this, and became more increasingly isolated, more often than not spending every waking hour in his room, which he now began locking himself into. He would also now more frequently row with the other members of the household, particularly his cousin Keith Purcell, who was a couple of years older than him, and who also lived at home, following a roofing accident. It was 1997, when in despair, David Bradley called on a doctor and opened himself up pleading to the doctor about how he was feeling. He described the cold sweats and the nightmares he was having, and how his mood would swing from polar opposites, most constantly being tense and wound up. But most alarmingly, Bradley said to the doctor that he felt like he was going to explode in violent outbursts, saying, I really want to kill someone. The doctor, who was a GP, not a trained psychiatrist, referred bradley to local mental health services and a psychiatrist and prescribed him the strong tranquilizer valium Now bradley did see a psychiatrist not a one-off appointment but several times but eventually the novelty of this wore off and bradley gave up on the appointments seeing no instant fix for himself if anything the nightmares and bad thoughts he was having got worse and they began now to impact his physical health and well-being in january 1998 Bradley was diagnosed with alopecia universalis, a complete loss of all body hair, which can't have done very much to do his anxiety and antisocial habits any good, could it? Then in May 1998, a consultant psychologist noted that there was no access to an anger management course available for Bradley, which probably would have been the most beneficial course of action for him, and nothing further to chase this up seems to have been done. Over the next few years this seems to have been the summer things for David Bradley who was having less than healthy thoughts and seemed that he knew himself he had mental issues but he was either referred on to someone else or ran into dead ends whichever way he turned. Yet he often failed to keep appointments and to take medication that was prescribed to him and he seemed to just be getting worse so he began drinking and using cannabis more and more to sleep and relax. Instead it made his thoughts even darker. In November 2002, by which time Bradley was surviving on incapacity benefit for depression, a psychiatric consultant who assessed him at a citizens' advice bureau was so concerned and indeed frightened by the former soldier's state of mind that he immediately contacted a GP. Bradley told the consultant that he slept with a knife under his pillow and kept it with him at all times in case he was attacked bradley stated that he'd only leave the house early in the mornings as he felt unsafe later in the day and might attack somebody if they looked at him during the meeting he also inappropriately broke out laughing and giggling without reason and then fixed the consultant with an intense penetrating stare a letter written the following day by the consultant recommended an urgent assessment of bradley pointing out that he could pose an element of risk. In an appointment with a consultant psychiatrist some weeks later following this, Bradley was noted as having possible diagnosis of schizophrenia, antisocial personality disorder and drug-induced psychosis. One element of a plan designed for treating him had been to obtain further information about his home life and history from his aunt, but this was never put into practice. At the beginning of the following year, 2003, Bradley had stated a strong wish to move to the country, an urge which should have been interpreted as a desire to be rehoused. Because during this period of assessment, Bradley often walked out on sessions and routinely admitted to not taking medication, the rows continued at the Purcell household, yet the good-natured family couldn't turn their back on him. His content with mental health services was ended for a period of time, when three months after extreme concern had been shown about him, for some reason his case was significantly downgraded. This carried on for the next couple of years again, with appointments made and while some were kept, others weren't. All the while the Purcell household changed from the happy family home that it once was, and by the beginning of 2006, the Purcells were planning to sell up and move to a smaller house. For many years they tried as much as they could to help David and at the end of their tether they were putting pressure on him to move out into a place of his own by now. In May of that year Bradley was referred back to mental health staff by his GP on crisis point yet again reporting feelings of depression, lack of sleep, violent impulses and drug and alcohol abuse. At a consultation on May the 18th 2006 Bradley admitted to having an erratic appetite Feelings of frustration and spells of severe upset triggered by memories. The doctors noted that, I quote, he was noted to stare into space and be genuinely disorientated. It does appear that there is some suggestion that he, Bradley, may be having a psychotic illness of a schizophrenic nature. It is likely that he has post traumatic stress disorder because of his experiences in childhood and those during his tenure with the army. However, We have not explored a relationship enough to explore these in any great detail. The notes also advised that future psychiatric workers were told to interview Bradley in pairs for their own safety, following his history of violence and his own admission that he'd recently fractured his knuckle, hitting someone. His next appointment for assessment had been due a month later, but it never took place it was either never followed up and arranged properly, lost in the system, or Bradley never bothered to attend. In fact, Bradley was not seen again by psychiatrists after May 2006. So this is someone clearly with severe issues, isn't it? Someone with pressure building and building inside him, and as with anything like that, things come to a head, and something eventually has to blow. That something blue, on Saturday the 8th of July 2006 Much like we've had this year, Britain was gripped by a heatwave in the summer of 2006 and on the second Saturday in July, the sticky and intense heat had gotten on David Bradley's nerves Because it was so nice, people were out having a good time, getting the barbecues out and it was extra noisy outside The heat and noise were making Bradley extra irritable that day and still using cannabis frequently he made a rare trip out of his room and took himself off to a friend's house to have a smoke and see if that could help some of the funny things happening inside his head to cease. It was late that Saturday afternoon when he returned still in a drugged stupor to the corner house at 45 Benwell Grove, Newcastle that he lived at with his uncle Peter and Josie and two of his cousins, Glenn and Keith. The place that had been his home for many years. So when he got home as usual, Bradley went straight to his room and locked himself in. This was a practice that he'd been in for a long time by then, and he had two sturdy locks fitted to his bedroom door to ensure that no one could get to him. This had been his life pretty much ever since leaving the army. He'd sometimes have meals with the family, but ever still the loner, he would then immediately go back to his bedroom, if he didn't eat in there as it was, and he would rarely leave the four-bedroom end terrace house at all. He did his own cleaning, washed and ironed his own clothes, which is something that the forces instills in you, and that you never lose. I still iron like a ninja myself to this day. Bradley spurned all attempts to persuade him to socialise, instead whiling away the days watching television and DVDs in his room and reading his collection of military magazines. The Purcells were at the end of their rope with this, knowing that this wasn't normal behaviour for a man of his age to do, and they feared that perhaps Bradley's fragile mental state had finally broken down irreparably. But it seemed to them that no one bar them even cared too much. They'd approached the army in desperation, but the army seemed to be adamant that this was nothing to do with them, It was the responsibility of civilian doctors and mental health services. They subsequently retorted when approached that if Bradley needed help, it was really an army matter as his mental health issues stemmed from his army experiences. No one wanted to take responsibility it seemed, and were quite happy to just pass the book from one to another. For once that Saturday, the house in Benwell Grove was empty. His Aunt Josie was away babysitting at her daughter's house, and the Purcell men who lived in the house were out too, with Peter and Keith drinking at the nearby Westfield Social Club, where 70-year-old Peter was a committee member, and where they habitually went every Saturday afternoon for a few beers. Also staying at the house that weekend was another one of the Purcell sons, 41-year-old Glenn, a glazier who lived in Wales, and was up visiting his family for the weekend he was catching up with old friends and was out drinking in Newcastle city centre. The solitude of the house that afternoon satisfied Bradley because it gave him time to fetch out and examine the arsenal of weapons that he'd been collecting over the years. Never losing his enthusiasm for firearms, it was one of his favourite pastimes. He had quite an assortment including several pistols, grenades, ammunition and thunder flashes. Several of these items had been smuggled back home when Bradley left the army, including a 7.66 pistol that Bradley had swapped for a packet of cigarettes while serving in Bosnia. His aunt had expressed concern and an opinion about the collection years before, concerned that the family didn't have a license for such things as this, and worried that it may result in prosecution and shame. Bradley had acquiesced, and in an effort to pacify her, When an illegal weapons amnesty came up in the area, he did actually hand in some of his weaponry. Unbeknown to her, or any of the other Purcells, he just didn't hand all of it in. The best bits he retained and kept hidden in his bedroom. Peter Purcell was the first of the family to come home that day. He got in at about 8pm, and with an afternoon session of drinking inside him, immediately flopped down onto the sofa and fell fast asleep just a couple of minutes later something terrifying happened inside david bradley's head it was almost as though a war had started in it and he was later to describe himself that all he could see was a blaze of gunfire he kicked down his locked bedroom door and burst out onto the landing he then kicked down every one of the other bedroom doors in turn and then began a swathe of destruction systematically through each room, like a Tasmanian devil. He smashed lights and wardrobes, ripped out and scattered the contents of drawers and cupboards, even put his fist through doors and attacked the walls. Bradley stopped for a moment to catch his breath, proudly surveyed his handiwork, and then began another round of destruction. Just as he started doing this second round, Keith Purcell arrived home, Hearing the sounds of destruction, Keith started up the stairs and saw Bradley destroying the upstairs of the house. Screaming at him as to what he was doing, Keith didn't get chance to get another word out, because David Bradley's mind exploded once more. Throwing himself at Keith in a fury, Bradley attacked him like a man possessed, punching and kicking him in a frenzy. Keith retreated down the stairs and into the kitchen, all the while being attacked by a crazed Bradley, who didn't stop until Keith lay shocked, stunned and bleeding on the kitchen floor. Then, Bradley turned around and went back upstairs to his bedroom, where he collected the 7.66mm pistol and the silencer that he'd smuggled back from Bosnia, fitted the silencer to the pistol, tucked it into his waistband and went back downstairs. By now, The injured Keith Purcell had managed to get to his knees, wondering what had just happened. He may not have even been aware when Bradley stood behind him, pointed the pistol at the back of his head, and pulled the trigger, shooting Keith at point-blank range. He was killed instantly, the silencer ensuring that the killing was soundless. Unbelievably, Peter Purcell was in such a deep sleep that he hadn't stirred through any of the sounds of commotion, he hadn't heard the destruction or the assault, and he of course hadn't heard the single silenced shot. He was never to stir again, for still holding the pistol, Bradley stalked into the living room where Peter Purcell slept on the sofa. He put the gun to his right temple and fired a single shot. Again, death was silent and instantaneous. By now far gone past any rational thought Bradley simply sat down on another chair in the sitting room to wait He knew that his aunt Josie would be on her way home in a couple of hours and sure enough at about 11.30pm Bradley saw the headlights of her car pull into the driveway He heard the door slam and the key turn in the front door lock He hid behind the living room door listening to his aunt take off her coat and when she opened the living room door before she had any chance to take in the scene of carnage that lay before her, Bradley crept behind her and fired a single silent bullet into the back of her head. He then dragged his aunt's body so it lay alongside Peter's and went back upstairs to lovingly admire his armoury. Glenn Purcell didn't arrive home until 2am that Sunday morning still in good spirits from a great night out and all caught up with old friends of all the members of the Purcell household Bradley had always gotten on best with Glenn they were similar in age and had done much together as youngsters Glenn entered the house and went right to the kitchen only having a few seconds after he turned on the light to gaze in horror at the scene before him of his older brother lying in a pool of now congealed blood he only had a few seconds because, having sat poised on his bed waiting for Glen to come home, Bradley had heard him come in and was now silently behind him in the kitchen. Turning to face the person that he sensed was behind him, Glenn stared in incomprehension as Bradley raised the pistol and fired several bullets point-blank into his head. Glenn could later only be identified by the tattoos that he had. On his feet. Not even stopping to bat an eyelid at the carnage he'd just committed, Bradley returned upstairs and finished wrecking every single bedroom. Finally finished, Bradley then took a long, leisurely shower, dried himself, and spent time choosing some fresh and clean clothes. Once dressed, Bradley then removed a large military bergen rucksack from his wardrobe. carefully began to place his armory inside it the 7.6 millimeter pistol that had just been used to cold-bloodedly execute his family was carefully and tenderly wiped covered with a black cloth and placed into the bottom of the bag several remaining bullets and the silencer were placed inside along with the thunder flash Now a thunder flash for those listeners who may not know is a type of sophisticated firework used by the military for training and exercise purposes to simulate explosions. It's a comparatively harmless weapon as it's primarily a training and exercise aid but this one was different. The deranged mind of David Bradley had spent time that evening whilst waiting for his last two victims to come home, wrapping the thunder flash in nails to turn it into a now lethal weapon. On top of this, he placed two knives, 119 shotgun cartridges, 18 7.65mm bullets, 96 9mm bullets, 202.2 bullets and he finished his lethal package off with a Mosback six bore pump-action shotgun, which was again lovingly wiped down and covered with black cloth. His pack complete the bag was zipped up and slung over his shoulder. Bradley then had a lingering look around the house that had been opened to him by a loving family many years before, that he just wrecked and turned into a scene of carnage, and then left the house, locked the front door, and set off down the road. By now it was approaching 5.30am on the morning of Sunday the 9th of July, and Bradley before long reached his chosen destination. Newcastle's West Road Police Station about a mile away from the Purcell House At the door Bradley spotted a no smoking sign and thoughtfully stubbed his cigarette out before heading inside Desk Sergeant Karen Murtaugh was on duty that morning when Bradley walked in and looked on as he placed the rucksack on the counter He unzipped it and began removing an item covered in black cloth from it telling her as he did so Don't be alarmed not surprisingly, she was alarmed. I'd be pretty bricking it as well if the hills have eyes pulled out a massive shotgun from a big bag full of warfare as well. And Sergeant Myrtle was understandably the same. She recalled later, I knew instinctively that it was a gun. He was calm, but he looked weird. I didn't know if he was going to shoot me. She ordered Bradley to move away from the counter and looking puzzled, he placed the gun on the counter and walked outside with his hands on his head. In the courtyard of the police station, whilst other officers were inside isolating the rucksack and diverting people in what they suspected could have been a potential bomb threat, Bradley sat with his piercing eyes staring ahead. He was approached by Officer Andrew Ritchie, who cautiously asked him if he was all right. Bradley replied that no, he wasn't really, and when asked why, he replied, because I've just killed four members of my family. Bradley was immediately arrested and whilst the rucksack was safely isolated for examination and all threats neutralised within 90 minutes police and army bomb disposal units were at the Purcell family home in Benwell Grove after Bradley had given them the keys. If Bradley had carried a big bag of guns and ammunition and a nail encrusted thunder flash into a police station then what may be possibly waiting for officers at his home? People living nearby in Benwell Grove were evacuated from the homes early that Sunday morning, whilst the Purcell house was checked from top to bottom. When it was given the all clear by EOD specialists, police could move in, and a team of officers, led by Northumbria Police's senior investigating officer, Detective Superintendent Steve Wade, fully took in the horror of what had happened. He was to say later, The house presented us with a terrible scene. There were the bodies of Josie and Peter Purcell in the lounge, whilst Glenn and Keith were in the kitchen. The property had been badly wrecked by Bradley. Drawers pulled out, furniture strewn round, and light bulbs smashed everywhere. What struck me most was the sheer waste of life. Every death scene is unpleasant, but the sheer number of people involved was like nothing I'd ever seen in my life. In interview... Bradley spoke in a detached way about the atrocity that he'd just committed. He was calm throughout and very cold when he gave his chilling story. Yet he was so detached, it was almost as if he was describing shoplifting instead of mass murder. Bradley claimed that he felt jaded and weird before he'd committed the four murders, claiming that the hot weather was getting to him that day, and he felt that he was going to flip. No shit. He then went on to describe in a cold detached manner the four murders how he just walked clean up to him and popped him when describing killing Peter after he'd killed Keith. When Josie arrived back Bradley said Again I just popped her in the back of the head. She fell in the corridor but I dragged her back into the sitting room because she was in the way. Then it was Glenn's turn with Bradley claiming I ran back downstairs and put one right in his face. He landed face down, and I put a couple in the back of his head. Asked if he had any feelings about what he'd done, Bradley shook his head and replied, Nope, there was nothing there. I didn't even think about it. I've always been a cold bastard and a loner. After being arrested for the Benwell Grove massacre, Bradley was sent to Rampton Psychiatric Hospital in Nottinghamshire one of the big three secure hospitals in England alongside Broadmoor and Ashworth. In April 2008, he was brought to trial at Newcastle Crown Court where he pleaded guilty to four counts of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. This plea was accepted by the Crown as neither defence nor prosecution were in any doubt that Bradley was not of sound mind. Prosecuting counsel Toby Hedworth QC claimed that after his military service Bradley had become increasingly isolated and withdrawn and this had led to growing tension in the Purcell household between Bradley and Keith Purcell who didn't get on together. Bradley was also aware that the Purcells planned moving into a smaller home and he'd been interviewed by a housing association about moving into a flat of his own. This clearly hadn't helped his mental state as he rarely went out and the thought of losing what he saw as his sanctuary would have severely aggravated Bradley's mental condition, with Mr. Hedworth claiming, by the time of the killing, the defendant was effectively living as a self-imposed prisoner in his own bedroom, plainly a manifestation of the mental illness he suffers. Paul Sloan QC, defending, said, When David Bradley was 17, Peter and Josie Purcell provided him with a roof over his head and welcomed him into their family. On the night of July the 8th to the 9th 2006 he repaid their kindness and generosity by unleashing a maelstrom of violence destroying four lives and in the process devastating the wider family. The events of that night can only be described as shocking and horrific and would simply beg a belief if this defendant had been of sound mind, if this defendant had been acting in his right mind at the relevant time. However, he wasn't of sound mind that night. He was ill. Experts agreed that Bradley was not suffering from Gulf War Syndrome, but a defence-appointed psychiatrist gave testimony that, in his opinion, he was at the time suffering, and was still suffering from, a combination of psychopathic disorders and severe post-traumatic stress from his experiences as a serving soldier. Passing sentence, Mr Justice David Hodson told Bradley, Anyone listening to the account of what you did must have been left aghast, not only at the carnage you inflicted, but also the chilling matter-of-fact way you went about what you did. In interview, you described to police in an alarmingly detailed, but accurate way exactly what you'd done. There can be no doubt at all that your actions that night were the product of your mental illness. From all I've read about this case, it may very well be that your psychotic disorders and mental illness are of such a nature and degree that it will never be safe for you to be returned to the community. I express the confident hope that the parole board would never contemplate releasing you unless it was completely satisfied you posed no risk to other members of your family or to the wider public. Bradley was then given four life sentences with a minimum of 15 years imprisonment to be served. He showed no emotion when the sentence was passed as he'd not done throughout the entire proceedings and was returned to Rampton Hospital. Detective Superintendent Wade said following the sentence The sentence seems extremely low but I would say the court accepted as the family and police have done that David Bradley was not in a position to understand fully what he'd done. I am of the view that he will never be free again. For such horrific crimes, it is unlikely that David Bradley will ever be released. But could this have been prevented? A subsequent inquiry into the care that he received was launched following his incarceration and it transpired that Bradley had once sought the help of a Newcastle-based Gulf War Veterans Association and its chairman, Larry Cammock, described what happened when he came into contact with him he said it was a few years ago but you remember things like this like they were yesterday bradley rang the office one day and was really agitated another of our lads was speaking to him and he called me over he said that bradley was so agitated that he couldn't get a word in edgeways when i spoke to him he said no one knew what he was going through because he'd been in iraq he said he was having nightmares and sweats and was suffering violent mood swings. When I told him that I'd served out there as well though, he calmed down a little, and I told him we could try and help him. We sent some forms out to him to fill in, but he never sent them back. He rang back a few months later to say that he'd lost the forms, and we sent them out to him again. We didn't hear from him after that. They said in court that he didn't have Gulf War Syndrome, but all the symptoms that were described relate to post-traumatic stress disorder which amounts to a very similar thing. He came across a lot of Iraqis who'd been killed during bombing raids and had also seen a number of colleagues from A company killed in a series of friendly fire incidents. He was looking desperately for help, but didn't think there was anyone there for him. He thought there was nowhere to turn. Mr. Cammock went on to say that Bradley felt that it was as if he'd been used and abused by the armed services and then dumped. He thought no one could help him. After his incarceration, it emerged that Bradley had been involved in several incidents at Rampton where he'd been dangerously aggressive towards staff and other patients when he was there being held on remand before he appeared for trial. On one occasion, he'd smashed a cassette tape and was preparing to use the sharp-pointed plastic edge as a weapon, and he'd also hidden homemade weapons and razor blades in curtains and bedding, waiting for a chance to lash out from his cell. Psychiatric assessors treating him became afraid for their lives and were intimidated by his hostile and menacing behaviour. A report by Nottinghamshire Mental Health Authorities dubbed him to be one of the most dangerous patients to be treated at Rampton, which houses some of the country's most notorious and dangerous subjects. He had regular consultations with psychiatrists here and one noted how Bradley constantly fixed him with an intimidating stare. Case notes from these consultations make for the following reading. Ringing his hands, holding head in his hands, displays extreme aggressive behaviour. Room searches uncovered potential weapons, including heavy wooden baton from a chair, which Bradley threatened to attack the next officer who came into his cell. Staff so concerned about safety of other patients, and themselves, from Bradley, that he is locked into a secure cell each night. During at least one violent outburst several members of staff needed to pin Bradley down to prevent him from harming others. After this episode have a google and look at the chilling fixed stare of David Bradley. This is a seriously intense disturbed looking man. Five years after the shootings the independent inquiry was concluded. In August 2011 Professor Aidan Mullen, the Director of Nursing, Patient Safety and Provider Development at Northumberland Tyne and Weir NHS Foundation Trust whose care Bradley was under at the time of the killings said First and foremost, our deepest sympathies go to the extended family of Mr Bradley This appalling incident has undoubtedly been particularly harrowing for them and there are absolutely no excuses for the shortcomings in the care that was provided to David we commissioned this independent investigation to get a clear picture of David's interaction with health services, to understand where things can be improved, and most crucially, to ensure that lessons can be learned and shared throughout the NHS to prevent similar incidents from occurring. It is important to note that there have been vast improvements in mental health care since 2006, and our priority is always to ensure the highest possible quality of care for the thousands of people who access local services every year, and we take the findings of this report most seriously. Bradley had declined a request from the report's authors to interview him in relation to his care, but the report found that the care he had received prior to his rampage had not been in line with national guidelines that denote a multidisciplinary care programme approach, that there had been a lack of adequate record-keeping and communication in relation to Bradley, and that several risk issues had been identified, but never dealt with in any systematic way. An apology was issued, which reads as follows. We would like to apologise to the relatives of the Purcell family and to David Bradley for the shortcomings in his care which are outlined in the pages of this report. We take the findings most seriously. David Bradley was a patient of our Community Mental Health Services in Newcastle, and whilst the report concludes that the tragic events which occurred in the early hours of the 9th of July 2006 could not have been foreseen, it does identify a number of areas for improvements, many of which we acted upon immediately following the incident. We would like to reassure both David's family and the public that we have rigorously improved the areas of care that were found to fall short of good practice to make sure that the same mistakes do not happen again Working with the local authority, community mental health services in Newcastle have changed considerably in the past five years, ensuring that the risk of a similar incident happening again in the future has been greatly reduced. It is also important to note that the awareness of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is now much greater than it was back in 2006 and we have now appointed a specialist veterans nurse consultant working in partnership with the charitable organisation Combat Stress to help develop specially tailored treatment options for patients with PTSD. We have also strengthened our risk assessment processes and patients are now seen by a specialist multidisciplinary team to ensure they get access to the right support in relation to their social circumstances as well as the right treatment options without delay. Despite these improvements we continue to take every opportunity to improve our services and work closely with all of our partners including primary care commissioners and local authorities to ensure those who are most vulnerable and need our support get the best possible care both now and in the future. Patient and public safety is our absolute priority and whilst tragic incidents like this are extremely rare our aim is to make sure that each and every one of the 70,000 people who need our help every year, receive care of the highest possible quality and in the safest possible way. Barrister Ewan Duff, who chaired the independent panel, said, Whilst it's evident that the final catastrophic outcome could not have been predicted, there were a number of shortcomings in the care which he was provided at various stages. If none of these shortcomings had been present, it may well have altered the sequence of events which in turn may have led to a different outcome. So that seems to be a bit of shutting the stable door after the horse has buggered right off, doesn't it? Because it doesn't bring back the Purcell family. It's too late for them. This is an incredibly sad case, and whilst I do not excuse nor understand the horrific actions of David Bradley, it's clear that he'd been suffering from mental illness for a great period of time. No serious steps seemed to have been made to get him into inpatient psychiatric care by either the Purcells, who just seemed to accept that that's just how he was, or consultants and doctors Bradley saw or was referred to. And it seemed that he was indeed passed from pillar to post by the Tyne and Weir NHS Foundation Trust. They would issue recommendations and observations and seemed to be clearly aware of the problems and issues that he had, and it was even advised just before the shootings that he'd be consulted in pairs as he was that much of a risk of violence. Yet these never seemed to be followed up further. I mean, he was never sectioned, for example, despite several consultants noting that he showed signs of severe depression or schizophrenia, psychosis. It seems that because there were no reports of Bradley ever having come to police attention for any violence, he arguably didn't go out often enough to be involved in any incidents, NHS staff were happy enough to try to pass the book back to the army. They in turn were happy to pass it back. And this paper chase of bureaucratic blame allocating and squabbling went on, whilst David Bradley sank ever deeper into a mentally dark abyss, perhaps incorrectly treated, perhaps himself having no faith that he could be helped, as no one would accept responsibility for treating him. Yet whilst there were clearly failings with the mental health services, and they do deserve the criticism levelled at them following publication of the Independent Inquiry's findings, I don't feel the blame should lie solely at their feet. Cannabis and alcohol abuse didn't help the situation at all, missing appointments and not taking medication prescribed didn't help either, and nobody, I must stress this, nobody asked David Bradley to stockpile weapons such as grenades and shotguns, which he was obviously of sound enough mind to be secretive and deceptive about. Because of his extreme withdrawal, and how much he'd kept to himself, the Purcell family weren't even aware that he had such an arsenal of weapons, long since thinking that he'd handed them in as part of an amnesty. They were to find out to their extreme cost that he hadn't. He'd even adapted a thunder flash into a lethal weapon, and had set out with a big bag full of death. What does that say to you? Yes, he went to the police station and gave himself up, but was that his original intention? Or did he just change his mind en route to committing another Hungerford? Bradley himself admitted the interview in detail the four killings, claiming that he'd always been cold and detached, so was he planning other crimes? it will likely never be known. Today, and most likely for the rest of his life, Private David Bradley is locked up in his own very dark world for the horrific crimes that he committed. There are organisations such as SAFA now that support service personnel and their families, An understanding of conditions such as PTSD is now greater and more widespread than it was 30 years ago, when David Bradley would have benefited from it the most. Yet if, as he felt, no one was around to help him in his tragic mental state, could he be forgiven for the massacre that he committed? The surviving children of Peter and Josie Purcell issued a statement much later following Bradley's sentencing that say that this could never be. We were and are an ordinary family who got on with life without causing any fuss or bother to anyone else. We had births, deaths, marriages and divorce with the family. For in all that time we were still together. But then life decides to throw a card beyond all expectations and belief. It is as if life decided that things were too good and for you and your ordinary family, and it will make sure you never take life for granted again. That is how my sister and I and all of our family feel at this moment in time. My sister and I try to cope with this by trying to believe it was not David who did this unspeakable crime, but some other entity that slowly took him away from reality and into some other dark world. We know that David's mother and brother, also our aunt and cousin, feel terrible and completely unfounded guilt for what David did. Please remember we love you both and no more needs to be said. Since the night of July the 9th 2006, our family and friends have suffered great heartache, sadness and loss for what can only be described as an act of complete madness when David cut short the lives of our mother, father, and both of our brothers, Keith and Glenn. There can be no forgiveness for what he did that night, but neither is there hatred or twisted thoughts of retribution. That path can only lead to the black hole of despair and depression. What a remarkable statement from a very dignified family. I mean, how would you even begin to come to terms with something as horrific as that? They are left to remember the David Bradley that they knew, once a soldier with an exemplary record. Instead, four innocent members of his family, and he himself, ended up being casualties of the war that he brought back home. So what do you think then, folks? A very sad and shocking case, this one, isn't it? And one I think especially tragic, because this horror, this massacre, or what other word can you use, seems to be something that could have been prevented. Countless times before here on the show, we've said that mental illness can get a grip of anybody. Sometimes it can be suddenly, like the 2010 Cumbria Massacre, or sometimes it can build over a long period of time as a slow burner, such as we've seen in David Bradley's case today, or the previous episode with Horrick Campbell. But unlike Campbell, however... David Bradley had come to the notice of mental health services several times before, so you're left asking should or could they have done more to help him? Or was David Bradley really so far gone that he was a lost cause and a ticking time bomb waiting to blow, acerbated by cannabis and alcohol abuse, with an arsenal of weaponry at his disposal? It's never going to end well, that is it? I'd love to hear your own thoughts and feelings concerning the episode which you can do in the episode thread on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook group, or through any of the show's social media links. You can email me, you can even do a bloody macaroni picture of it if you want, whatever. I hope that it's one you found both informative and interesting anyway. I'm dipping into the Patreon back catalogue this week on The Enthusiast, I know. I probably shall next week also, but you do what you can in light of current events, don't you? And while some of you guys will have heard these episodes, the majority of you won't have, so it'll be a new one to you. I shall still of course beaver away in the background on the multi because as I've said, it is well begun, I'd just rather it flow uninterrupted. So I'll wrap up here now and crack right on with that. As I said at the start folks, I know events right now are all bad, but there won't be an egghead worth the salt who is sitting with a thumb up their arse thinking... Well I could look to do something to help but surely it's just as important to discover whether ghosts change their clothes or not so I'll do that. That's not going to happen is it? People are on this. It is scary times but people are on it. Keep clean, keep safe and try not to panic too much about it. That's it from me for this week guys. I've been Paul the True Crime Enthusiast. I especially wish you all good and safe times and I shall catch you very soon. Take care folks. Thank you very much for joining me and goodbye for now.